This conference will now be recorded. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode. And today I have with me Matthew Jacobs. Matt is a partner at Vincent Elkins in San Francisco. And he was one of the lawyers who helped uh, Juniper Networks on their recent FCPA settlement. So, Matt, first of all, uh, thank you for taking the time to visit with me today. And welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Delighted to be talking to you. Uh, Matt, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about uh, your practice uh, there at V&E and the practice group that uh, you're in. Uh, sure. Well, I am uh, I'm co-head of our government investigations group, and uh, we have a great uh, great practice here at V&E. My uh, background is um, I you know started at a firm, but then joined the U.S. Attorney's Office and uh, was in the Justice Department for about six years and worked for. Uh, uh, Bob Mueller, when he was a uh, U.S. attorney in San Francisco, and then uh, left uh, probably about 15 years ago now to go into private practice and uh, built a white-collar practice at another firm and then joined uh, Vincent and & Elkins and opened the, the San Francisco office, which I'm managing partner of, about uh, about eight years ago. Well, certainly I, I, I'm from Houston, so V&E is well known to me uh, in Houston as well. Um, I'd like to uh, use the Juniper Networks case to maybe uh, uh, talk about some larger points, but let me start with that uh, case because I think it's most recently in the public eye and ask you, uh, can you can you tell us uh, how you were retained or who retained you and what was the scope of your original assignment? Sure. And I and just, uh, you know, uh, I'm sure you get this all the time, but I should probably say, you know, I can't share confidential information uh, uh, to, to Juniper, but I'll, I'll give you as much as I can based on, um, uh, you know, based on publicly available information. Um, so our client was the audit committee. Um, so, uh, you know, originally um, there, it, it, it was being, a matter was being in its uh, kind of infant stages being handled by a longtime company counsel and then it was determined um, that uh, it should be an audit committee matter and that they should bring in independent counsel. And so we were retained by the audit committee um, and, and, and they were our clients. So we didn't you know, represent the company itself, uh, but uh, obviously, you know, which raises all sorts of, uh, of interesting issues as you go through these things, but, but we're, our direct line of report was to the audit committee. And can you share with, with us what uh, at least was the scope of your initial assignment? Uh, sure. And this is publicly available. There had been whistleblower allegations about issues um, about Juniper's business in Russia uh, initially, and then that spread to uh, China, a uh, different whistleblower. Um, so spread probably not the right word. Um, and so our investigation included those areas. And then, you know, we ended up Looking at um, at a uh, uh, number of other areas across uh, the platform uh, for Juniper, but those were our um, you know main areas of focus. By the time we got involved, there was already uh, a DOJ and an SEC investigation, so the regulars regulators were already involved. So it, it was not a, a self disclosure, and of course, one of the challenges is you, you have a lot of companies in Silicon Valley that um, because of stock options backdating or other issues were 
already subject to consent decrees, and that was the case with Juniper. So uh, the facts uh, that you guys turned up your investigation have been reported in the SEC order, so I'm not really uh, going to go into the, the detail of those because I and others have talked about them in other forums, but uh, I certainly thought you had, uh, you and your team achieved favorable settlement uh, for the company. I was wondering uh, if you could just give us your thoughts on on that, that issue. Yeah, I, I think it, it, um, I'm happy to do that. I think the first point I would make is, um, you know, there was no DOJ action. We got a declination from the Department of Justice. And so that itself is a, uh, you know, a great and, uh, by the way, a completely appropriate result for the company. I think DOJ did the right thing here by declining to bring uh, prosecution or trying to have any, you know, any even uh, civil settlement with DOJ. So we had a complete walk away from DOJ, which, as I say, is a great uh, result here after a long investigation. Um, and then, you know, the SEC uh, matter was settled for, uh, you know, I don't want to say uh, that, uh, you know, that in excess of $10 million, is a small amount of money, but considering if you look at other settlements uh, from comparable companies, they are in the hundreds of millions of dollars. So to get a settlement in the, you know, 11 to $12 million range is really uh, very positive and it did not uh, focus, there was no bribery charge. Uh, uh, which is also important to the company and again completely supported by the facts but as you know anybody who's negotiated one of these things knows you know a lot of times the government has enormous power over a company in negotiations like this um, because at the end of the day the cost of litigating and the impact to your uh, to your business can be, and the distraction can be prohibitive. And so that's, of course, why you see, I mean, you know this better than anybody, you see so many uh, settlements of cases. Um, government has enormous power. So to come out with a result like this is, um, uh, you know, I think very positive for the company, and the company is very happy to be moving on uh, at, this, at this time. Matt, one of the things I think many compliance practitioners look to and look for in a settlement or a resolution are the compliance action or the remedial actions around a compliance program. Uh, and they get, garner uh, either best practices or uh, perhaps new ideas or where the government may be going. But I wanted to ask you, do you believe that the remediation uh, that the company put in place and if you guys help them with it uh, really helps them now stay compliance uh, more robustly with the FCPA and other international anti-corruption laws? So it's, it's, it's a great question uh, of how compliance fit in, and I'll tell you a story after this, after I answer your question. But um, it certainly played a major role, you know, I mean, especially when you're dealing with a situation where it was not a self-disclosure and the government hears about uh, and initiates its own investigation, you're already, in a way, starting from, uh, you know, from behind. And so 
uh, you know, the way you handle the internal investigation and all the steps that the company takes to properly remediate and, you know, fix its compliance programs is, um, you know, is really critical to ending up with a result that's favorable for the company and avoiding a monitor, uh, all of which we um, we did here. Juniper, um, uh, not to get into the weeds on this, but had the benefit of having one of the premier um, chief compliance officers uh, anywhere, um, uh, Mike Ward, who had come to the company during the midst of our investigation and frankly as part of our remediations, uh, felt that the company should have a CCO and uh, Mike and, uh, and and you know there ended up being a new general counsel as well who's also very strong and, uh, and Brian Martin and Mike and Brian are a formidable team and I think the government was you know profoundly impressed by their work in making sure that Juniper was at the top level of compliance compared to you know not just Silicon Valley companies but more uh, mature companies. Um, so having a state-of-the-art compliance program was critical. Um, the story I was going to tell you is, you know, I was involved in a, one of the largest criminal antitrust cases um, probably five years ago, and the company ended up cooperating. And during the course of that cooperation, um, we had, I don't know, 50 meetings with uh, the regulators and in not one single instance was there a question about compliance. Uh, a couple years later, had another case for a, uh, you know, it, was, it was our client was a foreign manufacturer. Very similar case, but much smaller. And in that instance, the prosecutors insisted on meeting with the chief compliance officer of the parent company. Um, so not even under investigation um, as a condition of even entering into settlement agreements and then wanted a full day compliance presentation and all the steps the company had taken. And so, you know, the, the government's interest in compliance has gone from, you know, if you were, you know, zero to a hundred scale, government's interest in compliance is probably zero. Uh, you know, as recently as five or seven years ago, and now, you know, I don't know what you put it at, but it's certainly not zero. It's closer to 100 than to zero. Right. The uh, What I'd like to do now, uh, Matt, is if I could maybe pivot to some legal issues or more legal than compliance issues uh, and using your experience uh, at Juniper and other cases. So if I could ask, what are your thoughts on when there should be separate counsel for a company and separate counsel for an audit committee? Um, yeah, great question, Tom. I think, um, uh, you know, there are different strategic advantages. And just to be clear uh, for, so that people know what we're talking about, um, you know, there's originally a question, do you bring in you know, counsel, um, and should a, should an investigation be directed by the audit committee? And I think, you know, wherever there's significant issues that potentially in play, that the audit committee should should be involved in directing the investigation. The question then becomes: um, you've you've had an internal investigation, you've handled it. Um, 
do you need or should you have separate counsel negotiating on behalf of the company or should the company uh, should the counsel that did the internal investigation pivot and be arguing uh, in front of the government and you know I've seen it done both ways my view is that if you have if you've done the internal investigation and you've developed credibility with the government because you've done a you know complete and thorough job and you've rooted out whatever issues there are and you've described it that I think pivoting and then arguing on behalf of the company gives you a lot more credibility uh, with the government than some other firm that just comes in and is you know hasn't isn't as familiar with the facts um, but it's a you know it's a big question for audit committees and companies of do you you know do you have kind of two firms doing different roles um, and uh, obviously there's some advantages to doing it that way but I, I kind of favor the uh, let the uh, the firm that handle the internal investigation if they've developed credibility and have a uh, with the government uh, then I think you're in a better position to argue effectively on behalf of the company I think one of the things that many people have thought about for a long time uh, and I've been in this world for about uh, 12 years now is the length of time it takes uh, to investigate uh, and then close out a matter um, and I was wondering what your thoughts might be from the practitioner side of why it takes so long and how does that help or hurt the company um, you know I've never had an investigation where the government was involved, where the prosecutors prosecutors didn't say at the outset, this case is going to be different. It's going to move expeditiously and quickly, and then it doesn't. <laughs> um, and it's a it is it's a problem I think um, in this in the sense that you know these investigations can be expensive. Uh, they are expensive and very distracting uh, to company business. Um, on the other hand, I think that the passage of time can actually help uh, get to a result that is uh, more positive for a company. It doesn't always work that way, and you have to read the situation, but, you know, inevitably, um, uh, there are changes in at the at the outset of an investigation you have prosecutors who can sometimes get very excited by the facts that they hear and um, start thinking uh, start dreaming about big numbers uh, and um, individual prosecutions and uh, you know a big uh, 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 PR you know big press release for the government and um, and a big settlement against the company and I think sometimes, it, and again, it depends on the situation, but sometimes strategically you need to wait them out. Um, I've had a number of cases where, uh, you know, we've had several changes in prosecutors. And then you're, you're, you know, the company already has an advantage having done the internal investigation of knowing the facts better. Um, so at the end of the day, you're negotiating over what a, you know, what would happen if you don't have a settlement what would this look like in court if the government had to prove the case and so uh, and, and this is something you know that you you don't want to go to your clients at the board level and say hey 
this thing is going to drag out for five years. But the reality is that uh, that sometimes that ends up being a very effective strategy um, in terms of getting to a settlement that's actually appropriate and 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 reasonable. An, an interesting perspective. Um, you, you spoke about the interest of the government in uh, how uh, in compliance and how you've seen that certainly evolve in the antitrust area, and I think that that is a continuing conversation in the FCPA enforcement area. But I wanted to ask you specifically about uh, what's the role of management changes uh, for a company that might be under uh, an FCPA scrutiny? Um, yeah, it's. Uh, I, I think that. It depends on what uh, the facts are that are developed and what failures there were, if there were failures. You, you know, not every, it's, it, it's easy in these cases to have the benefit of hindsight because you know what's what's gone wrong and how something developed. But sometimes, you know, sometimes the company did everything right and you still have issues that pop up and the company has dealt with it appropriately but where you don't have, um, you know, where you don't have, um, where things didn't go necessarily well, um, it is a, uh, it can be very effective with the government to, um, to have made um, corporate changes. And, um, you know, again, whether it's bringing in a chief compliance officer or changing out the general counsel, um, or other senior leadership, sometimes that is um, necessary and appropriate. And I think, you know, it's uh, it can be a revelation for the board uh, sometimes about what has occurred um, that led to a particular issue. Um, I think that is the rare case, um, uh, but, you know, sometimes it plays a critical role in getting to a good result. And I think one of the things that uh, is actually a mystery to many compliance practitioners is how does commerce and disgorgement issues fit into settlement discussions? I think they have an appreciation of remediation and certainly cooperation in the investigation. But this other uh, disgorgement part, how does that fit in? So disgorgement has historically been an SEC concept rather than a DOJ concept. Um, and it's always been uh, very ambiguous about how those um, items fit together. Disgorgement, of course, is giving back the ill-gotten gains. And when the DOJ put its pilot, pilot program into effect, they basically adopted the SEC model and said, you're going to have to pay disgorgement of what is uh, whatever is the ill-gotten gain. And you can imagine that that is a really complicated question. Uh, if you have, let's say, a travel case or uh, even a bribery case, what is the commerce that was actually obtained as a result of a payment? You know, if I, if I, uh, somebody takes somebody to a, on a trip to Paris or takes them takes them to a baseball game, but uh, uh, but they were the only bidder on a particular project then you'd be hard-pressed to say, you know, but for that ticket to a baseball game, you would not have won that contract. Um, and so I think it's critical, and we've had great success in cases in delving into 
the details of contract origination and really understanding um, and, and being able to show um, uh, DOJ in a very persuasive way and SEC, hey, um, yeah, you have this conduct that you don't like, but in reality, that's not what caused uh, the commerce to occur. And so you can get into some pretty interesting uh, conversations about how things uh, developed the way they the way they did. But I think this is a very you know, underappreciated element of how you get to a good result in the case. And then let me uh, end with a question, frankly, I've always wondered about, and I still think about it today, which is what is the effect of the government deferring to uh, internal uh, internal investigations? Uh, you know, if you go back 20 years, uh, you really, uh, you really didn't see this phenomenon where the government defers to, uh, companies doing internal investigations, you know, and frankly, before Enron, which was a case that I had, uh, worked on when I was in the government on the California energy side. It was really the first time that uh, you really started to see, you know, big white collar matters come about and uh, the government kind of step aside and let companies do internal investigations. Um, and I, I, you know, uh, they're very expensive um, uh, and they can be very distracting, but uh, truthfully, from the company's perspective, from the perspective of a board of directors, uh, it is much better than having the government handle the investigation because you know the facts. And at the end of the day, you're going to know the facts much better than the government. Uh, and uh, you have the ability to figure out early on, okay, what went wrong, if anything, and, and how do you fix it? And what's the quickest, easiest way to get out of this? Um, and frequently it's persuading the government that, you know, nothing went wrong here. Um, so it's a huge advantage, I think, to companies to be able to get the government to defer uh, to, uh, to an internal investigation. Um, so I think it actually helps companies. It obviously saves the government a lot of time and money of doing these investigations on their own. And again, you've got to, if you handle them right from the, defense perspective, you're going to get a much more favorable result. And we've had great success in getting the government to walk away and not bring charges in a number of instances where uh, clearly if they were on their own, they would have they would have come to a different conclusion. Matt, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time, but I wanted to ask you if uh, listeners wanted more information about your practice or the firm, where could they find out? Uh, well, thanks. I appreciate that. Uh, I'm at uh, Vincent and Elkins, and my email is mjacobs at velaw.com, and contact information is on there, and uh, uh, and uh, I'm available. Well, Matt, thank you for taking the time to visit with me, and I look forward to uh, your next successful uh, FCPA matter. All right. Thanks very much. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.